Today we are joined by a very special guest, Lieutenant Colonel Worth Parker. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Parker is a Marine Corps Raider, uh, is also a, the Vice President of the Marine Raider Association. He's also a frequent contributor on the Softly blog and uh, a close and growing more personal friend of ours. So join us now as we talk to Worth and uh, get into some, I think, some fairly uh, heavy conversation. Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Softleet. This week, we have a special guest with us, Mr. Worth Parker. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for joining us. Or is it us. Parker Worth? Is it Parker Worth? I don't know. It's a fair question. Because I know you only by your Facebook. All of my names are first names, because I'm from the Deep South. So, right. Russell Worth Parker is right. my actual name. My great-grandfather was Worth, so that's what I go by. There we go. It tends to create mass confusion in my life, but... I go by Worth. I like it. It's a good name. Thanks. It's been working for like 150 years. Right. I, I want to go on record as saying that this is, this will be the most down-to-earth and humble, like a field-grade officer we will be dealing with ever. Let's hope. Yeah. I think, well. The challenge is up. I want, to, <clears> I, want to, <throat> I want all future guests who are of Worth's like rank to have a bar to look to. Is that your way of <laughs> passively, passive aggressively enforcing behavior? I know. I feel like I just got squished down. No, I feel like Josh is, or uh, Worth is like at the same coolness level as Josh, but just in like a totally, a more... totally. It's not, dude, it's not fair. What? Josh is cool now in I'm the threatened. way that a fraternity president is cool. I'm totally yeah, exactly. threatened. <laughs> Who's Josh? I want to be cool. Josh, Josh. Josh, no Josh. last Josh. name. <laughs> Josh, Josh, no last name <laughs> d- declared is the kind of dude who will send you pictures of, of uh, his shenanigans killing a, an alligator one night with, and be like, hey, man, you guys should post this on your site. I'm like, I would, except there are 100 crushed beer cans in the background. <laughs> Josh, is, Josh is the otter of the Special Forces Regiment insofar as like he tries his best to maintain an air of sophistication <laughs> and positive leadership. But when in reality, he's really just like all the other guys. All, so. all SF officers fashion themselves as one of the guys. Like They're like, man, I should have been an NCO. They'll tell you that. Like, oh, I should have been an NCO. Not Josh. Josh should have been an NCO, and he'll never tell you I should have been an NCO. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for realsies. But he's been—I mean, he's been a good, uh, good friend to Softleet, and um, he's never been on the podcast though. He has not been on the podcast. So we're going to set the bar. Yeah, back. <laughs> we need—we need to have him on for sure. We'll have a laid-back field grade competition. Yeah, one of these days. I don't think we're going to be able to catch him. But anyway, enough about Josh. But our second choice, worth <laughs> right. Hi, he also ran. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us today, Worth. Thank you for letting me. And uh, for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us the short thirty-second bio. Okay, so I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. Um, I've been in the Marine Corps since '94. Kind of a weird, varied background. I actually left active duty in '98, joined a reserve unit down in Mobile, Third uh, Force Reconnaissance Company. And I stayed down there for eight years, had a blast, and I, I think you know I kind of grew up with a lot of guys who are now senior master gunnery sergeant, sergeant major type, and so maybe that's why I, I have a great affinity for them. 
Um, I also think the reserves gives you a very, very different perspective on service. But in 2006, um, the Marine Corps stood up Marine Special Ops Command, and a number of my friends from an active duty deployment to Iraq uh, were tapped to establish the command. So I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I came back in the Marine Corps, and I've been back since 2006. Well, I would like to go on record as saying that Worth is also the only other lawyer I know who will use his status as a lawyer as a, a byline <laughs> instead of being like, by the way, did I tell you guys I was a lawyer? Well, <laughs> like, married to one. You know, that's enough in one house. So <laughs> you got your law degree after you get out of the military. I did. I got out in 98 um, and I kind of goofed around. I worked construction for about 18 months and I was planning to move out to the West Coast and yeah. I don't. I want to surf. I mean, when I got out, I surfed my way from Oceana to Whidbey Island, and actually stayed with one of my corporals for a while up in Whidbey Island, and then headed south. And uh, ultimately, long story short, I ended up meeting the woman who's now my wife. And as those things go, I decided to stay in the south. And then I needed a job because I was about a year into bouncing between my mom's house and her couch. And she looked at me one night, we were at CeCe's Pizza, and we were having an all-you-could-eat at CeCe's Pizza, and I only had enough for one of us to eat all we could eat. <laughs> so as I was bumming quarters from her for video games, she looked at me and said, do you, do you ever envision yourself having a, a real job? And I said, yeah, I guess that's a sign. That's a signal, right? So uh, I got a job selling pharmaceuticals. It's a very gentle signal, too. But yes. hey, my wife, Mama needs my, new shoes. My wife says this all the time, and I've just like blown it off. I'm like, nah, yeah, no, I, I can't I, picture having a regular job. You uh, actually took it to heart? I, I'm sitting here and, and thinking this looks like it works out pretty well. Uh, uh, Aaron isn't, it's not fair to use Aaron as the metric because Aaron is already successful from a regular job. Ah, the old regular <laughs> job. Uh, but so anyway, I, I kind of figured out I had to grow up and I got that job. I did that for two years and 9-11 hit and I figured out, okay, my reserve unit didn't get called and didn't get called, and didn't get called. And I, I figured out I wanted to get back in the game. But for whatever reason, I thought, you know, I'll do that as an attorney or as an FBI agent or something like that. So I went to Florida State and got law and went to law school. Um, but about a year and a half into that, we got activated, went to Iraq um, and uh, I spent you know, the better part of a year either getting ready for or deploying to Iraq. And I made a bunch of really close friends um, who were all active duty guys and the guys that I deployed with who were all the reservists I was with. And when I got back, it just didn't seem like it made sense to to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. um, so I finished school, took the bar exam, and I had applied to return to active duty. And here I am since 2006. All right. So you did not practice law at any point. I was for about a skinny minute. I was a prosecutor. Um, under what they call the Third Year Practice Act. So an intern, basically. Sure. But because I was older and because I'd literally just come back from combat, uh, the guy who was my boss, who's now a judge down there, said, hey, you know, we're going to put you in the felony division. So I actually did try cases. All right. Um, and I did try felony cases, which were, you know, was really interesting. Yeah, I bet. Um, but it also clarified a lot of things for me. Um, I'm pretty libertarian in my views. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't have a whole lot of desire to spend a lot of my life locking guys up for a lot of times just not being very smart. Yeah. Um, I did work one, one child molester case that was uh, really, really, really rewarding to lock that guy or help lock that guy up for 78 years. I think we got. Yeah. Um, but on the day to day, it was just kind of like, what are we doing and why are we doing this? Yeah. I don't want to go off on too much of a social justice tangent, but <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I don't know a single prosecutor personally that isn't of that opinion. Well, like, yeah. I mean, hearing you talk about this, you know, I made a, a Facebook post just the other day. Um, 
you know, is Theranos is dissolving that blood testing company. You know, I mean, where else would you see someone if someone robbed a bank of a billion dollars or more and either killed or injured people on the way out? Those you would go to jail for hundreds of yeah. years, if not get the death penalty in some states, right? And to have those people that were basically two people in charge of that whole operation, where there were definitely more people that, even if it would be difficult to prove, knew what was going on, have them face a maximum of twenty years in prison each, to me is uh, is like is a grave injustice. You know, when you have all of these resources that get spent trying to put other people away for way longer periods of time. For Three strikes for pot, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the case. You you know, know, like, I, we had a case one time, and, and in Florida is a three-strike felon state. Mm-hmm. And so we had a guy, I was second chair in a prosecution, helping someone prosecute a case. That means this guy uh, really, I mean, he was guilty of being dumb. He's a yeah. dumb, dumb guy. And he had two felonies already. And one night he decided he was going to go out and have a big night out, and he had $20, which was a lot of money to you know, that kind of guy. So he stopped by his girlfriend's house to get her to hold the $20 while he was out so he wouldn't spend it. Two o'clock in the morning, he decides he needs that $20. He goes back, he's banging on the door. And uh, anyway, long story short, her brother, who's a felon as well, comes out. And understandably, they throw hands because this guy's beating on their door at two o'clock in the morning and yelling, et cetera. Well, he, the, the, the two-strike felon busted the brother's lip. I mean, like any of us have seen happen in bars around the world many, many times over. Um, and in the process of rolling around on the ground with him, he rolled into the house and then rolled back out of the house. So now he's penetrated the dwelling at night. That's a separate crime. Um, aggravated assault. So he's up on his third felony and the guy refuses to take a plea. And so before the case, you know, we're over there at his table. Like, Look, man, take five years in prison. Just five years in prison. We'll be done. Um, and then he says, no. I mean, he's a stand-up guy. He's going he's gonna to do this. Uh, and then we, we presented our case as the prosecution. And halfway through, you know, you kind of do a changeover. It's halftime. And so at halftime, we walk over to him and like, hey, man, three years, Florida Department of Corrections, you'll be out in 36 months. Did you months. feel that this guy should have gone to jail at all? Absolutely. Well, I mean, whatever. Maybe, you know, 30 days in the county or something right. for literally busting a guy's lip. But he's a third strike felon. And this so what's is going what through your says. mind even when you're offering him three years? Or thinking, I mean, please take it, please take it. Because you can't just say, it's just you just can't as a prosecutor go, this is stupid. Right. Um, let but, this guy but why walk. not? You have the power to say that. Uh, it's really not that easy. I mean, you work that prior to, uh, you get, prior to getting to court, that's deal making time, Right. Um, and so I'll finish it. I'll, t- I'll tell you a second story and then I'll finish it, but I'll finish this one. Um, anyway, long story short, this guy, he wouldn't bow and he wouldn't take five and he wouldn't take three. And we're just pretty much pleading with him. I think it was a case of jury nullification. Jury found him not guilty. I had tears in my eyes. I had tears running down my face because, you know, we were, let the record show I'm making the tiny signal with my hands. <laughs> we were that close to locking this guy up for the rest of his life mm-hmm. over a busted lip. But the jury said no. Yeah. And I've never been so happy to lose anything in my entire life. Um, and that just kind of, you know, and, and as part of that, I, as I said, I did this under the Third Year Practice Act. So I was a, a law student at the time. We had to write these reflection journals every week. And, and I was just like, oh, what is special? <laughs> like, I'm not spending the rest of my life with a stack of, of these manila folders coming at me. Right. There were some cases where it, you were awesome. I mean, you really felt like the flaming sword of justice was protecting everyone again like when i said lock up a child molester that's a 
that's a great day, as torturous as it was, because it was hell on his family. His kid hated us. Um, but that was a good whack. He needed to go away, and the guy with him needed to go away. Right. Um, but this guy, I'm, I'm sure in the intervening 15 years, that guy's gone to prison for a long time it's a, for it's, something legit. It's the Zimmerman. <laughs> yeah. hey, well, hey, man, you got away once, but, but I mean, we're going to get like you. You're taking that job because you have a true sense of justice, right? And so when you see something that's outside the bounds of that, I mean, how could you not react to this? That's right. This and and there were some really legit people. I mean, this, uh, again, I'm, I'm still close to one of them, um, the judge now. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and, and you got to have that, right? I mean, you got to have those people to keep the genuine predators off the street. But I really do believe there's got to be some kind of reform. I mean, we're, the, the rate at which we're locking people up in this country. Um, it's, is, it's untenable. It, it is untenable. Yeah. Well, right. I, logistically untenable. I, I, I read the other day. It's like in you know, 1971 or something when Nixon started the war on drugs, we had something like 260,000 people incarcerated in the United States, <clears throat> and now that number is like 2.5 million. It's a tenfold increase in 40 years of of things, and you're like, and it's the most per capita of any Western nation, and you're like. Whoa. Are we the nation of freedom? Or are we the nation of locking people up yeah. for smoking? Are you, a, are you a This American Life guy? Yes. All right. Do you remember the episode? I think it was This American Life about the Florida high school with like the 21 Jump Street drug sting. Yes, but not in detail. All right. So, you know, <clears throat> this Florida high school had parents that were complaining about kids selling drugs at high school. The police department sent these, you know, I think it was like three or five undercover officers into this high school for months um, trying to put together a drug sting. And one of them was, they never showed pictures, obviously, it was the radio, this really attractive female who got a bunch of students to sell her marijuana. And because of the way the laws are in Florida, I think anything over like an eighth of an ounce is a felony. So they run this sting for months. She gets a bunch of kids to sell her, you know, like a quarter ounce of weed. And the kids that are over 18 get charged with felonies at the end of this thing, right? right? And it's like some hot chick in your class that every, every dude wanted to bang, you know, is going around basically asking kids, can you, hey, can you help me find weed? It's entrapment, it's, man. Yeah, totally entrapment. But, you know, these kids, like, the whole thing that was super fucked up was not only was that a massive race, waste of resources, in my opinion, but by turning those kids into actual felons at 18 years old, like, you are now basically all the things that you are accusing them of. You're almost like guaranteeing that they're going to have happen to them in the future, right? Well, it, like it almost guarantees that there is no. I mean, we're we're saying tacitly there's no rehabilitation. Well, and you're just destroying this kid's future, right? Right. Like the ability for him to get a, a good job, you know, go to school, like all these things that could happen, are now off the table. So, kind of case in point, when we moved to D.C. Uh, on this last move. One of the movers was this guy, and I, you know, whatever, I won't say his name, but um, <laughs> he was one of the movers. And he's working all day long at a 7th billion degrees in July in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, built in a swamp. And um, he's just killing it. And I start talking to him, and he's so blown away that, you know, I was doing the job that I was going to be doing, which, you know, to me, is like, you know, okay. Um, but he was so blown away. And he was like, well, could... I said, do you want to come to the Pentagon and get a tour? I mean, he was blown away at that. And I kind of realized, A, he's completely disconnected. This guy lives in Washington, D.C. He's an American citizen. He has no concept that these are his buildings, that that he can tour it, you know, whenever he wants. 
And I start talking to him and I'm like, well, you know, what are you doing for a living? Well, look, the guy did a 15 year bid for, I don't know, something with a gun, armed robbery or, you know, whatever. He probably needed to do that 15 years. Right. But now, you know, as I was talking to him, I said, well, let me see what I can do to help you out, man. Let me see if I can find you a job. Let me see. I'm just going to keep my eyes open. Um, and I start calling him. And I said, hey, how about this job? Well, I can't do that. I can't do that. Hey, and then he tells me, well, I tried to go get a job doing construction, but it was across the city. And I lost my license, which is actually what is is ab- absolutely crippling for people. Dude, and I'm not- it's the it, losing your driver's license in modern America, which is the first bar. That is your first punishment, right? That's the first thing that That's happens right. when you get a when you have a judicial judgment against you, you lose your driver's license. And I, I and don't you're condemning that guy to doing life in prison 120 days at a time. Because if he wants to work, he has to drive. He drives, he gets pulled over. He goes to jail for 120 days. When he gets out, he still doesn't have a license. He goes back to his part-time job that he drives to because he has to because he has to make up for the money that it costs him to be in jail. And he gets picked up 30 days later and goes right back to jail for 120 days. And it it is like, like, what are you doing about this? Like the guy, most of the time, those guys aren't, it's not like he's high or drunk or anything. Right. He's just trying to go to work. And he's he knows he's going to get picked up for driving on a revoked license but what other choice does he have? Sell drugs? Well, that's exactly right. And I mean, I'm not a big bleeding heart. I'm just a fan of rational behavior and recognizing reality. And in reality, you just nailed it perfectly. He's doing a life sentence 120 days at a time. And that's exactly what happened with this guy that I met. You know, I was trying to get him a job like working at the, the Popeyes in the Pentagon. I mean, yeah. I was just keeping my eyes open for that kind of job. And, and even that he can't do because he can't get a clearance to get into the building to work at Popeyes. He's got kids because, right, life happens. His wife's working at McDonald's or whatever she's doing. They're trying to feed kids in Washington, D.C., where it's expensive to me. And, and again, my, my wife is a big bleeding heart. I'm not. But I am a big fan of going, yeah, you know what? The world is getting hotter. And, oh, by the way, this is crushing this guy. There's no chance he's going to get better. And so if anybody's saying that we want to improve society, but they're not willing to offer some avenue for this guy to move up in the world, then they're not serious. Well, it's, it's, there's a, you know, talking to law enforcement officers, they, when anytime they're looking at a perpetrator or they're, or they're not a perpetrator, but just talking with civilians, non-law enforcement people, the first thought in their mind is like, is this person a civilian or is this person a criminal? You know, they're, they're making that mental heuristic distinction between the two. Nice word. And, I think the line for a lot of people between criminal and civilian has moved towards civilian over the last 20 years. You know, it's like it used to be like, oh, you're a bad person. You you did an armed robbery or you murdered someone or you're a child molester. There's these horrible things. We absolutely cannot have you in society. We need to lock you up and there's not going to be any real rehabilitation for you. But now there's this like people that just made mistakes and they get caught in this legal legal loop, but everybody else views him as like, well, that's a criminal. But you guys have seen as I mean, opposed to that's a guy that's just down in his luck and we need to help him get back because he's trying to walk the right it's path. The to kill a mockingbird construct, right? Like when you talk about to kill a mockingbird focuses on a bunch of like, I mean, a polite society of people who work hard but don't make a killing. Like the wealth gap in whatever Alabama town that story is focusing on. It was Alabama, wasn't it? It was Alabama. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of the town. They, they, I mean, the lawyer, 
the the protagonist of the story is is not a wealthy man. He is he is a comfortable man who is cutting out a living for his family, but he's not super wealthy. And it's like showing the gap between the dirt family. You know, like these people are treated poorly and ostracized because they are like they're not productive, right? And then the way that even like even the dirt family has social cachet over any black person. You know what I mean? Like the way that the black people are being treated, like hardworking, taking care of their family. But if you like for me, I look at that as in a very Wendell Berry-ish kind of way mm-hmm. where it's like this is a very equal community separated by race almost entirely, right? Like yeah. the issue isn't that the society is fractured economically as much as it's fractured by visible lines in race. And now we say like the gap is just getting bigger. Like poor people are stigmatized. Yeah, well, the gap is depth. You look, he brought up the Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, the CEO and founder of Theranos, stealing a billion dollars from from venture capital and individual investors, hurting people in the process by these flim-flam medical tests. Right. But people don't view her as a criminal because she's dressed nicely and she's well made up and she's operating in this high level helicopter to work limo to the airport private jet kind right. of thing whereas if someone had done that and even you look at you know like a, you, you don't think of George Clooney in Ocean's 11 well dressed as like you know stealing from the bad guys like that's not a criminal he's, he's still just, a good guy he's just a smooth operator right? right but you like put those guys in dungarees and you like give them AR15s and they go in and do the same exact thing like oh now that's a guy that's like a bad guy right it's and it's really hard for people like like the guys you the, the guy you're talking about you know trying to find a a low wage job, you know, put his life back on track. Right. It's but like, what, well, but what is, what is the a, upward trajectory? Right. Like we love in America to talk about the bootstraps. Like it's a, the, I call it the bootstraps myth. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast do not agree with me, but like the idea that we, we worked hard and we made something of our lives. Like I'm lucky, man. I come from a wealthy family. Um, I was given college. Uh, anytime that I've had something bad happen to me in my life, my family has supported me and like helped me get a leg up to rebuild what I destroyed through bad decisions. But most people don't have that network, that that safety net to come in and be like, hey man, you really fucked up. <laughs> you know, so like, I think that's binary, right? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you're you're 100% right. Right. We're, we're born with what we have. It's the whole born on second, you know, yeah. think you hit a double kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I was, I, w- I was born on second. And if you'd asked me 15 years ago when I was deep, deep, deep in my libertarian ideology, I'd have told you, you know, you're insane. Everyone can make it. Everyone can do it. I'm, I'm still of the belief in, you know, the, the shining city on the hill and that America is a, a beacon for the rest of the world. But I am also, uh, as I keep saying, a believer in reality. And, and it is easier for me. It just is. I had college handed to me. I remember my first platoon sergeant was a guy who retired as a sergeant major. And he was like the platoon sergeant you're supposed to have, like the platoon sergeant in the book, who is the father to the second lieutenant. And I just, I adored the guy, I still do. And he spent 20 years getting his college degree, piece by piece by piece by piece. Well, his bachelor's degree means way more than my BA, my MA, my JD because he earned it over time. My, I say my BA is basically a piece of paper that proves I could get up and go to the same place in Boulder, Colorado for four years in a row. Major accomplishment being that you weren't too high to do that. Well, right. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> Hello, Boulder. Oddly enough, for a libertarian, I'm a, I'm a teetotaler, but, but yes, in, in Boulder. 
Um, and so I, I really think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the gifts we've been given by whatever method we've been given them. But I think that as Americans who are conscious of freedom, it is our obligation to advocate for similar for similar access to privileged activities for everyone who wants them. Totally. Not in a socialist kind of way, but in a, in a like we shouldn't be advocating the creation of roadblocks for people who are disenfranchised or poor. Like we shouldn't be like, you know what? I don't think that person deserves college. We shouldn't make it so they can't get a driver's license so that they can't leave their neighborhoods. Well, that's a really shitty neighborhood. Yeah, man. And as long as you trap them in that neighborhood, they're going to be shitty people trapped in a shitty neighborhood who are angry and unhappy. Well, and that was my mover, right? He would get up in the morning. He's getting up in the morning at 4.30 and jumping on the metro because he can't drive because he gets rolled up if he drives. Yep. And he did get rolled up for driving. And the cops, like, man, cops know what's up. Yeah, <laughs> They're uh, community guys. The they know that guy. Like, exactly. get in your car, bro. Like, I am waiting for you to get in your car because I know you don't have a license and I'm going to make I'm going to make a ticket. And by the time he can get out of his lousy neighborhood to where the construction job is happening, it's an hour and a half on the metro. It's 530 and 75 other guys just like him are standing in line waiting for the two jobs for that day. That's yep. just day work. And I mean, like, I can't imagine trying to survive by day work. I don't know what that's like. I like that Aaron said, I don't want to get too deep down the social justice <laughs> rabbit are, hole. Right? And I'm like, ha ha. You can edit. <laughs> no, man. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, my hometown, Chicago, uh, which The Economist magazine, you know, called home to the greatest, like, failed public housing experiment of all time, Cabrini Green, which was recently knocked down. Well, at this point, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but a lot of the same thing, you know, like, so they put this massive housing development in the center of the city in some of the best real estate, but it was so big that it became like its own little city, right? And I remember growing up, you know, in high school, um, even college, coming back home to visit, it was like, you didn't get off the highway and drive through that neighborhood, especially, definitely not at night, maybe during the day, um, you drove around it, you know, even if it was like going a couple miles out of your way. And ultimately... You know, the city basically said, hey, we're going to tear this down. It didn't help that, you know, firemen would get shot at by, you know, guys up in the towers when they'd come to respond to fires and, and you know, all of the other violence that went along with having this multi, you know, city square block development that was kind of like insulated from the outside. But when they tore it down, a lot of the places they moved people to was at the far edges of the city where public transportation either doesn't go or maybe it's like there's like one kind of bus that goes to that general area that takes you into the network of buses that then reaches like the network of trains, right? And so, I mean, it could take you two or three hours to get five miles uh, just, you know, based on the schedule. And, and when you're pushed to the edge, you're, you know, by definition at the edge of the city, there isn't a lot of economic activity there, right? Um, or at least depending on, I guess, what edge you're at. Maybe if you're at the edge next to the nice suburbs there is. But um, once you push those people out to the fringe, it's like, out of hey, you're like, you're out of sight of that, of everyone that's kind of creating economic activity in the, in the city. And now you're kind of out of mind. And then, you know, why is Chicago like the murder capital of the, the United States, you know? Um, <clears throat> Brian thinks it's because there's lead in the water. What'd you say? Brian thinks it's because there's lead in the water. Well, I think that's true for Detroit right? <laughs> and Flint. No, but I think, and then it becomes an argument about, you know, this is why gun control doesn't work. It's like, man, I, th I think the, 
the issue has has roots in economics way more than it does in gun control. Economic well, disparity, man. Like I swear to God, like it, I I hate to harp on Wendell Berry, but like he his point about Middle America in the Midwest specifically in at the like post World War II era, right, where like the greatest concentration of wealth in America was not in New York City or Philadelphia. The greatest concentration of wealth is in like Podunk, Middle America farming communities in the Midwest. And it's because ev- and like the 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 mean was what everyone had. It wasn't like, oh, there's really wealthy and really poor people. You're talking about entire communities of farmers and doctors and lawyers who all make the same amount of money because they understand how their roles interact with each other. But the banks had more cash on hand than anybody else because like everybody was doing okay. There wasn't like, you know, like, man, there are a couple poor people in our neighborhood. That's it. It's not like, you know, there are whole slums. Yeah, I mean, a fat and happy middle class is what drives the prosperity of the country, right? But it doesn't even have to be that fat and happy, right? Like that whole period is like hardworking people. Like they're they're people that are doing ninety. When I say fat and happy, I don't mean to imply lazy. Yeah, what I'm saying is prosperous. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I I think one of the biggest things that's changed since I've been in my lifetime is the amount of empathy people have for poverty and. Perhaps even uh, I don't want to say stupidity because that's the wrong word. But just as the as the tech game and as the as the economy has shifted towards more high end stuff, the ability for uh, a person <clears throat> that is of lower education is it's just difficult to even play the game anymore. And yet we have very low empathy for those people. As, as a general soul. And it's hard. To, you see a lot of, of people talking online. It's like with a second, the people that are born on second have less and less and less uh, empathy for the dudes, empathy for the dudes born but on at first bat. or at, at bat, you know, and it's, and, and yet they're the same people that talk about freedom and they espouse this bootstrap thing. And it's like, man, you just totally blind to the well, pillars and, that you stood on to get where even, you're at. It even bothers me in some ways. Like <laughs> the, the, We've talked about this. Like my wife is a, was a social worker in East Tennessee, and now she's a sociology. Well, yeah, she's still a sociology professor, you know. And like, so I get a lot of like, I get a lot of liberal input at home. <laughs> but like, the funny part for me is like, nobody wants to listen to my wife talk about that stuff, you know. Like, she is a bleeding heart liberal woman, and people are like, "Well, she sounds like an idiot." And I'm like, "Man, I talk about what she talks about, and people will listen to me about it." And I'm just saying, all I'm saying is that people deserve a fair shake, right? And like, there are a lot of people that I know who are doing well now who have been on social programs of one variety or another, and they will deny to you that they have ever gotten any help. You mean like TRICARE? Oh, dude, exa- exactly. Well, so there's another <laughs> aspect of, of admitting the truth, right? You mean a pension for military service? Or, or I mean, even more so talking about the fact that like as an E3 with a family in the army, like a lot of people are on supplement uh, on WIC or some form of like a government subsidized social program for food, you know, because it's like you're not it, being an E2 or an E3 in the military is not designed for you to have a family of four. <laughs> and no. some people join the military because it is a it is a very clear path to a comfortable income in a in a well structured bureaucracy. Right. But that doesn't mean you don't start at the bottom rung. You certainly do. Um, and it's a great ladder and it's one that people can work their way up. But it's funny to me when I'm like, man, I've known you since you were an E2. 
I know that your family was on WIC and that like when you were working on your college degree with uh, tuition assistance, you, I mean, all of these programs that helped you get where you're at, you look back now and you're like, man, I, I don't have time for single mothers that, you know, are like, they're sucking on the tit of civilization. And you're like, man, I, why is it so hard to look in the rearview mirror and understand that like other people are on a bottom, a lower rung of the same ladder you climbed and that they're not bad people for being on that ladder. Like, I don't get that. I, I totally agree. And I, I also think, you know, for me, trying to eschew hypocrisy in my life is, is pretty critical. Like that's a whole big piece of self-awareness. That's a whole big piece of being a better human being. Absolutely. And anytime I start smelling hypocrisy in myself, I try to root it out. And, you know, I, I recognize many of my iniquities, my, my weaknesses, whatever, over the years, because guess what? Every human being in the world has them. Um, and so I try not to castigate somebody for displaying the same traits that I've displayed at any time in the past. And, and I think that's that empathy. I don't know who said empathy. You said it, um, Brian. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty critical. And, and what's crazy to me is when things like that, when human empathy become political bumper stickers, Right. I mean, this party is empathetic. This party's not. This party's hard nosed. This party's not. I don't I don't understand that. Well, that's a sports well, I, team thing. Brian and I always talk about which sports team are you? Oh, tri uh? The tribalism is terrible. <laughs> but and I, I I've the one of the biggest hypocrisies I see and, and it's hard for me to to deal with is that the people that tend to be the most nationalistic about the United States and would wear a hat with an American flag on it or wear a shirt with an American flag on it tend to have the least amount of empathy for other Americans. And it, it just baffles me because, you know, like especially political tribalism or towards the poor or towards uh, other races or whatever, you're like, man, like if you really cared so much about this country, you would care even more about the people in it and elevating everyone in it. I've, I've never been able to, uh, to balance that out. But I think for me anyway, it's one of the reasons I love the military as much as I do. Right. I mean, even when we all have our frustrations, what have you like you do in any organization, but you know, Doug touched on it. I, I firmly believe, you know, you got a kid who was born in, you know, Possum Neck, Arkansas, who comes from deep in the holler. Great people in Possum Neck. Great folks. <laughs> and that kid, joins the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and does 20 years, he changes the entire trajectory of his family. Um, that, that is a, a vehicle for social change, you know, that I, and, and I don't consider my, well, whatever, I won't go deep into my, my beliefs, but that is a vehicle for social change that cannot be denied. And I, I've talked to people of, you know, all races, colors, creeds, et cetera, about this topic you know, and the kind of conversations you have when you're sitting in the field at two o'clock in the morning and it gets deep into sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I've seen it. And now I say that I've, I've watched it as, as a guy who was born on second. Um, but I've seen it for guys and gals who were not born on second and who completely changed their trajectory of, of not just their own life, but that now means their own, their kids are now on second base. And I, I think, you know, I, I understand why some of those people start feeling like, well, I bootstrapped it. Why can't anybody else? But I don't know that that's necessarily even true anyway, because we're so selective in, in who serves in the military. Oh, my sure. God. It's difficult. And it's, gotten, it's gotten way worse. Well, and mil the military is fantastic for the reason of it. It provides so many different things to so many different people that can put them on the path of success, 
whatever they're lacking, there's a lot of things they can add. I, money was not a problem for me as far as educational opportunity or having a safety net. I just was a, a, a lazy piece of shit, you know, like I just I can attest. Yeah. I just I was a very low motivated guy and just kind of cruising along. And, uh, I joined the military. And so I had other, um, keys to success that some other people don't have. So whatever the military was paying me or the benefits they were giving me weren't the advantages that I needed, but I did need self-discipline and I needed self-respect and I needed uh, to understand how I fit into the larger apparatus of this country. We're still and flim flame artists, to well, be clear. Yeah, I am still a confidence <laughs> man at heart, but um, it, it provided me with those things. And so it provides so many different things for so many different people that you really can like you said, kind of change your stars and move your, move yourself up. But yeah, th- like I you mean, said, th- the barrier to entry is becoming so high. Well, I think it's crazy. Like we, when we joined, we thought that the barrier to entry was high. Like, you know, talking about like, Hey man, not many people are fit anymore. Like fitness alone was the barrier during the war, right? Like, are you physically right. and mentally fit to join the military? That was pretty much it. There is a waiver for everything. One of my best friends was an NYPD cop who got a crazy DUI, like a really bad one. And the judge was like, hey, man, can't be a cop anymore. But if you join the army, we won't put you in prison. And you're like, man, he is a fine, upstanding senior NCO in the Special Forces Regiment that everyone looks to with respect. Like he is a he is a great dude. I know quite a few guys that have had, you know, you know, histories like that. Like I, I went through the Q course with a guy who is a crackhead. You know what I mean? Like he, at some point he woke up and was like, I'm not doing crack anymore. And like, I'm going to get my life together and then join the army. And he became uh, a pretty rad dude over at first group, (laughs) you know, like, well, the army used to be a legally rehabilitative thing. You know, that was kind of like the, but now hey, either go to jail or you can go to the army, son, you know, get your life on track. When I talked to Dan about, so like the army just released, I don't, I'm, I'm certain that this will affect, um, the Marine Corps as well, but there was the all act that went out the, the whatever it's an army circular, like a notification about recruitment standards. They just added what, like seven new criteria that restrict entry. One of those that is mind boggling to me personally is any misdemeanor crime conviction that resulted in a $500 fee or any time in jail. Even if the t- jail time was deferred, if the judgment involved jail time, you're no longer eligible to be in the army. And the other one was, uh, what was the other one? It was any possession charge, even in places where it was legal, any, any possession charge resulted in you not being able to join the military. And I was, well, the the no, in use, if you, if you live in a state that where marijuana is legal and you go and And you you fail the drug test at MEPS, you're not And it's, and they're thinking about making it waiverable. It's like, but no, man, they they wrote all these waivers are like, all these waivers are indefinitely denied. There is no one high enough in the army to approve those waivers. That, that is the way I have taken the all right. And I called Dan, our, our buddy, who's the, the commander of the Raleigh recruiting command. He's a great dude. And I was like, man, how did that, how did that affect your bottom line? And he was just like, bro, it's like a kick in the gut in the last quarter of, of the year, it was a major blow. Like a lot of guys we had on the table that were good recruits are gone. We can't do anything for them. Yeah. I, I, you know, I never know anymore because I've just seen so many guys over the years and there's part of me. It's like, Hey, fine. Sounds good. Let's uh, have stringent standards at the outset and bring in who we bring in. But then there's the question of, are you making the numbers that you need? Um, you know, I, I've been blessed to serve with, uh, people of 
of all stripes and all backgrounds. And some of those cats were, you know, maybe came from questionable backgrounds. Some of them came from very wealthy, well, well-established backgrounds. Um, it does take all types. I mean, whenever I talk to, to younger officers or enlisted guys, they say, you know, embrace the characters unless they prove themselves unembraceable or unworthy of embrace. But I've had plenty of, of very different non-standard cats working for me over the years or working with me over the years. And I love those guys. You know, I mean, I think they make the world go round. Well, I mean, if especially since we come from like the special operations background, you know, like you certainly understand the value of a guy who has a shady background. I mean, if you're in Africa and there's not, you know, the ability to acquire vehicles and you're in an alternate, I mean, having a dude that knows how to hotwire a car goes a long way in a, in a tight situation. Well, basic training revealed to me just how bougie my upbringing was. Because <laughs> I didn't realize, <laughs> yep. you know, I didn't realize, like, I remember, you know, in high school, the, the circle of friends I went with, if someone had gotten like a 1200 on their SAT or like an 1150, you're like, ooh, yeah, man, it's going to be tough for you, buddy. Gonna tough going to be getting that scholarship, <laughs> brother. Like you might need to go retake it. And then they got like a tutor and like retook the test, you know, the $90 test and all sorts of stuff. Why do you have to talk about me like this on the podcast? <laughs> and you're like, man, man, if only he had studied harder. You know, and then you meet guys at basic training. I met these guys. They didn't know that Washington was the capital of the country that they were sworn to defend. And I was like, oh, okay. But, and these were guys were wild, you know, and things like behavioral things that you thought were just beyond common sense, like just instinctual almost. These guys didn't understand, you know. It's like, no, it's not okay to like, have like fight club in the showers at 11 o'clock. Oh, know? my dudes, it's, my it's dudes like, like a, to piss in soap dishes and the, in the shower and then fling it at other people. And I'm like, what? Is, you guys are animals. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you saw that like if that was the path they were on, right, in the civilian world, and, and it was a, a matter of um, their upbringing and, you know, their parents having to work all the time and not, be, not getting like the parental supervision that they wanted or whatever culture they were coming from, all of that combined. But the military wrote, was able to write that ship yeah. for almost all those guys. And by the end of basic, you know, they're a dress, right? Dress boots, polished. Yes, sir. No, sir. Ready to take on the self-disciplined guys. And, the way I see the military going, you know, with, with currently trying to shrink the force, you know, all those opportunities for those guys just really aren't on the table anymore. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's an unfortunate byproduct, but at the same time, ultimately what's the military for? It's to enact foreign policy of the United States oh, of America. Yeah. And so, you know, if we need X number of soldier, sailor, airmen, and Marines to do that, then that's the number that we need. And that's the number the budget will support. I don't have any odds to do yeah. with that. Um, and, and so I, I, I will frequently say, you know, this is not a this is not a social welfare organization. This is a, a professional military organization that has some amazing byproducts. Yeah, but it definitely for a while it was like the lovable scamp reform school, you know. And I mean, there's a lot of value in that. I think there's value in that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so changing topics here slightly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I love seeing you post on Facebook is book reviews and it seems like you are a devourer of literature so it's one of the things that i wanted to chat about today was cool. kind of your your velocity of of reading where that comes from and uh you know i want to hear about some of the books you've read recently that you think are are super top notch okay cool um 
Yeah, I, I'm a voracious reader. I mean, that is something, and, and I will say too, social media has had a negative impact on that because I'm as voracious a consumer. You know, basically I'm like any of us. If I find something I like, I consume as much of it as sure. I humanly can, which is, you know, probably my problem with fried chicken and barbecue. But um, I, as a kid, if I was on the bus, I was reading. And when I got off the bus and I'm walking from the bus stop to my house, I was walking along, you know, reading a book as I was walking. I'm, the precursor to the people they're staring at their phones now. Um, and so I was just always reading. And that's the way it is in my family. Like my mm -hmm. family is a family full of lawyers and judges and politicians. And we're all readers and we're all writers and we're all voracious consumers of the printed word. Um, I, I started thinking about writing a few years ago. I mean, and it really was kind of a weird, weird happenstance. I never really meant to be anybody who spent any time writing. I just figured I'd read and read and read and read. So to answer your, your question um, about books, yeah, the, the, lately, I'm re right now I'm reading C.J. Shiver's The Fighters. All right. Um, and I was fortunate to get to go to a book reading of his the other night, in, which is one of the wonderful things about D.C. You've been talking about him for a while. He's I, phenomenal. I don't feel worthy of friending him on Facebook, but I just followed him today. He popped up on my people you may know, and I'm like, well, I don't know this guy, but I'm going to follow him. He's like, <laughs> super down to earth. I mean, he's a prior Marine. Yeah, he was mm -hmm. a Marine officer in, uh, in Desert Storm. Um, who came home, and I remember the first time I read a piece of his in Esquire magazine. I was, I think, a second lieutenant, so it was is 20 years fiction ago. fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. He's, right. a, he's a war correspondent. He's right. kind of like one of the preeminent war correspondents for, in the world. For the times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and he, uh, anyway, I don't remember what I read 20 years ago. I just remember reading his bio, and I was like, wow, a, a Marine can do this. This is really cool. Yeah. Um, because all I ever wanted to be was a Marine. So it kind of narrowed my view of the world um, uh, up to and through commissioning. Um, but I was so impressed that that name stuck in my head. And names do stick in my head. Like mm -hmm. I, all your names stuck in my head as I started seeing you pop up different places. And I realized, oh, yeah, I, I know who that guy is. And I know that, what that cocksucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just network analysis, right? Um, <laughs> but anyway, Shiver's book is, you know, the, a, a, a tactical level soldier sailor airman marine level evaluation of the last 17 years mm -hmm. and it, he's a he's a beautiful writer and he really he cares about the the low level guys and I, and I say that that's he cares about the fighters which is thus the name of the book so there's a guy in that book who's a fighter pilot there's a guy in that book there's an sf uh, nco there's a uh, navy corpsman um I mean, in each chapter is kind of detailing events. Then he was there with him. So anybody that likes Sebastian Younger mm -hmm. is going to like C.J. Shivers. Right. Um, I have a feeling a lot of people listening to this are Sebastian Younger fans. Almost certainly, right? And I, I'm a fan of his as well. I remember reading his, uh, I think it was Fire, On Fire or Fire or whatever the book was about fire years and years and years ago. Was it about fire? I think it was about fire. <laughs> it may have been called fire. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so if you like Younger, if you, you know, and I loved, I love his writing. I loved yeah. Restrepo. I watched Restrepo about a week after I got home from Afghanistan the first time, and I was sitting up at 2 o'clock in the morning with my newborn, and you know, I was like, wow. Um, so him, uh, there is a writer that I've referenced to, to Doug a, normal, a number of times. Um, I think I even added him to the, the team room, um, but a guy named David Joy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you actually posted his piece that was looking at looking at Appalachia. Yeah. Um, about hunting. Yep. So David has been one of the like a mentor. He's kind of mentored me. Um, right. 
and uh, he lives out in Western North Carolina, mm -hmm. and he writes books about Western North Carolina. So now that we've momentarily moved off social justice, let's slide back into it. You right. know, his books are about being poor and desperate in in the hollers, in the hollers, in the coves. And the coves. App Appalachians never really escaped that. Uh, yeah, have you ever, read Hillbilly right? Elegy? I, I have, and, I, and I, my wife's reading it right now, oddly enough. But what's interesting to me is I've started reading more and more of the Western North Carolina authors. I've always been a fan of the Southern authors. Mm -hmm. you know, my favorite author of all time is a guy named Larry Brown, who's, who's dead now from Oxford, Mississippi, You know, home of Faulkner, home of Barry Hanna, home of a, a panoply of really, really impressive Southern writers. And uh, it's a wonderful little town. And it is a wonderful little town. It's where I went on my bachelor trip. Um, but... Uh, what I would have kind of learned, you know, all those Western North Carolina writers don't have a lot good to say about hillbilly elegy. Mm -hmm. um, hillbilly elegy appeals to my libertarianism, but I also understand the the reality of what, you know, we keep talking about reality, the reality of, of what they're talking about, that it just ain't that easy. Um, and that when, you know, you are, when reality is that, you know, is inches in front of your face, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to maneuver around it. I mean, I, I have some space in my life. If something bad happens, I have financial space. I have maneuver space. Um, and so David and, and has historically opened. having bad things in your life happen to you when you have space. They're not really that bad. Right. You but, know, it's like, uh, oh, we can deal with this. So you have well, room some, to work. Someone once told me. If you have a problem and you can solve it with money in your pocket, it's not really a problem at all. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's, I think, a lot of what David touches on is I would tell any of our folks listening to read any of his books for any number of reasons. One, um, I mean, they'll just appeal to guys who like a lot of testosterone on their pizza, and, and I do. Um, and, you know, David's a gun guy. David's a, a real guy, um, and he knows of which he speaks. I mean, he... he kills or grows 90% of the things that he eats. Awesome. Um, he makes his own turds in the yeah. words of our serious instructor. six to midnight. Right. <laughs> but, but he's also a, a incredibly talented writer who's been kind enough to kind of encourage me just because mm -hmm. I just reached out to him on Facebook, as I do. Um, and, and so I've gotten a lot out of his books, The Weight of This World, um, Where All Light Tends to Go, and then his latest book is The Line That Held Us, and I think it's far and away is his best of the three. Um, he's also got a good memoir about fly fishing because right. um, he's an obsessive hunter and fisher. But yeah. anyway, I totally tell guys to check those books out. Um, and the the middle one is The Weight of This World. And for our guys that are you know military especially, it, it, it may or may not appeal. But one of the characters is an Afghan vet. And, and David will say he wanted that book to be a treatise on violence. Mm -hmm. um, and it is. It's savage. And all his books are pretty savage. Um which I, again, thinks will, it'll, the darkness side of things. I like dark yeah. literature. So are you doing more writing yourself now? Thanks to you guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, very honestly, and I say that completely genuinely. Um, this kind of started uh, a few years back. I was, our home, we have a home in Wilmington where I hope to settle. Mm -hmm. um, and I got up one Memorial Day a few years back, and I, I carry this list of, of names in my pocket. Um, and there's about... Gosh, we're probably about 55 names on there, I think, of of guys I either knew or guys I know of in some more personalized way uh, that we've lost over the years. And, like, I feel obligated. That's that's my guys. That's the guys that I pull that list out periodically and I read it. Whether I would have even recognized them on the street, I probably stood there as they put their body on an airplane. 
And it's my duty to remember those names. Yeah. And so every Memorial Day, I would just type those names up on Facebook and put them out there. Just, hey, no, no sanctimony, no Memorial Day is not about your barbecues. It's just here's the guys while you're barbecuing. Excuse mm-hmm. me. I don't use barbecue as a verb while you're cooking. Um, oh, I can't. I can't wait. To revisit that faux pas by you, yeah, right. Uh, Examine your own hypocrisy, <laughs> sir. Yeah. Uh, but so the lead line, find the root of, of it. My favorite piece worth has ever written is "barbecue is not a verb." <laughs> so uh, anyway, I mean, um, <laughs> it's my job to remember those guys. So I wrote this lengthy piece. Um, and Incredibly this powerful, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, and that was probably the first thing I had ever written that was not a school assignment or it was, probably, I think. I mean, I dabbled a little bit, but it, nothing that ever mattered to me. And that just came out of me um, before we went to a cookout. Mm-hmm. So I put that up on Medium. I just learned about Medium.com. I, was, I'm, I am a Luddite. I, I, I understand Facebook pretty well. I, I think I have an Instagram. I think I have a Tumblr, but I don't know how to use them or even what my sign-in is. Tumblr's mm-hmm. only meant for kinky pictures and stuff anyway, so you're good. good. to know. Um, <laughs> God bless it. So <laughs> uh, anyway, I wrote that thing up, and then I was like, well, Medium's pretty cool because even an idiot like me can post pictures and links, and, and it's completely idiot proof yeah and so i started doing a little bit of writing on there all right and then um honestly i don't know how oh i do know how i got connected with you guys um jake denman all right so yeah. old jake yes I, uh, all roads bleed back to jericho denman i <laughs> like the fact that i to, to segue have you're not you don't follow instagram like you don't troll it the way we do like right, right. like when i'm sitting there taking a dump i'm like catching up with all my friends in the world jericho and his brother travis are currently doing things in eastern europe and they posted a picture of them walking down like main street in bulgaria or romania or wherever they are in like cry pants of course and and t-shirts and i was like ah oh, bringing the best of america <laughs> to eastern europe <laughs> just ugly american ended up um but yeah so i i'm pretty confident that's how i got connected with you guys. And like I say, I, I build networks in my head. And I met Jake in, in 2010. Um, we were together in Afghanistan and uh, worked together every day. And I, I, when I decided I like somebody, I really, really like somebody. And I really, really like Jake. Um, I think people either love him or hate him. No like question. There is no question. Uh, I'm familiar, I know another person I'm like familiar that. with that construct. <laughs> His name rhymes with rugless reef runner. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And, and I have some of that. I think I'm a, I'm a little smoother uh, taste than than maybe some folks. But certainly a smoother taste than I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, anyway, I got into that softly team room on on Facebook and started looking at that and and mm-hmm. doing a fair bit of laughing. And then I noticed Doug kept popping up, popping up, popping up. And then I was able to do the net analysis and figured out Doug mattered somehow in that hierarchy. All right. It depends uh, on who you talk to. Aaron won't admit it. <laughs> <laughs> and well, then eventually I sent him that piece of the list and I, I had sent it to New York Times mm-hmm. at war um, and they you know the editor really liked it but you didn't call it a rough draft when you sent it in did you? I did not <laughs> I, abs- I polished it further um, we can talk about that some more uh, but she said I can't I can't use this because you've already put it out on social media and gotcha. you know the old gray lady has very stringent standards sure appropriately which is crazy to me because like it's very rare that I like I'm the kind of dude who will like shed a lonely tear over a Hollywood movie that has like a like a 
a heart pulling father role figure role. You know, like and my wife is like, are you are you crying? F- fuck you, Cam. Y- yes, you know, I am. That's like a three year old <clears throat> without his love. Yeah, right. That piece was. It reminded me a lot when I read it, um, and actually, the first time I read it was on like the Softly website on Memorial Day, um, and it reminded me almost instantly of Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Uh, That's huge. Thank is, you. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's like one of my favorite books. Um, I I feel very privileged that that book was introduced to me in high school. Um, that you know, I had a, a first year English teacher who had the courage to bring a book like that, at least at the time, into the classroom, which I think was probably like a, a ballsy move. I would say. Um, but <clears throat> I think the, and, I, and I've given a lot of thought about why that book is so powerful and like why it, it has uh, basically like touched my life in the way that it has. Uh, and I think that the reason is the same that applies to the piece that you wrote from Memorial Day, which is that, there's a lot of raw emotion in there and conveyed without any judgment whatsoever, right? You're, you're, you're giving facts without any type of exactly what you were saying before, you know, like, Hey, this is, you know, this isn't about barbecues or, you know, there's, there's no virtue signaling. There's, there's really no signaling whatsoever about right or wrong or good or bad. Well, cause you know? that would have cheapened the, their memories, right? Ex- exactly. If I talk but, about me, then how is this possibly about me? You know, and that, that kind of goes to that whole conversation about Memorial Day. It's, it's not about any of us sitting around this table. It's, no. it's about the dead guys and gals that we know. Nothing and pisses me off faster than people trying, trying to economically or socially trade on the memory of fallen soldiers. I this spent, is, I pisses me off. I so spent fast. a lot of years avoiding funerals in general. Like I spent the, I had the attitude that like, funerals like maybe i thought that somebody else's bad juju was going to rub off on me like hey man they they died and like that unlucky like streak is going to hit me and i literally i I did not go to any funerals for any of my fallen brothers and i realized that's shitty in retrospect especially since last year i managed to hit three and by the third one i was just emotionally just destroyed like i worked two of them as like you know as part of the funeral detail mm-hmm. and then the third one was for a friend of mine who was uh it was actually the green beret who was killed in uh in africa by uh by allegedly two navy seals um and i just i walked out of there and i called one of my buddies and was like hey man like how do you feel right now and uh, he was like oh dude i can't do that again and i'm like yeah man like i i can't go to one of these but the thing that I realized about it was that it wasn't, it's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's about the fact that like those families have like a huge sense of loss and, and having us around to like reminisce about like the positive aspects of when those people were alive, like when our brothers were still walking the earth, like we, we have an obligation to support the families That's right. and Memorial day in a lot of ways, like as an NCO, I think that I've, I have, I've typically pawned off that responsibility on officers, you know, like, Hey, you go talk to the family. I don't want to get involved in that. You know what I mean? And now like, as I've gotten older, I feel like Memorial day specifically is like a time to call the families and, and be like, Hey, you know, like I know you guys are missing 
this person. I too am missing this person. You know, it's in remembering them as they lived is the important part. It's not about like what we're doing or it being a holiday. It's about like supporting <clears throat> the families and making them realize that, that their, their, their child sacrifice was worthy or their, you know, their spouse or sibling. And, um, you actually, I believe you posted that article about the world war one letter. Yes. Is that you? Yes. I read that this morning and I told my wife, I was like, man, it was like, it was a letter from a German soldier, um, who wrote the mother of a, an American pilot from world war one, four years after he was responsible for the death of that soldier, like his machine gun battery shot the plane down. And then he was with the pilot when he died in a field hospital in France. And he wrote like the most cordial and warm, you know, tribute to that soldier, that, that pilot that you could ever imagine to the mother. And I was like, man, with, with all the grieving that went on in the process of her losing her son, it had to have felt good to have someone from the other side of the argument <laughs> contacting her and saying, your son was the most worthy opponent I've ever had. And his losses felt by us, and as I'm sure it's felt by you, and that you living your best life like is a testament to the, the, you know, the greatness of you raising this, this hero. I, I think that's pretty spot on. And I think it also begs a question, like, you know, we always talk about the brotherhood uh, and, and what does that word mean? And I, it means a lot of things and it can be a really heavy, important, you know, value laden word, or it can be a really cheap word, right? You know, well, the brotherhood, man, is, you know, is kind of cheap. But if you have a brother, then you probably also have a mother and a father and a sister and a child. And, and so the brotherhood is that extended family and the extended family that we've built and so even, you know, tenuous connections that you maintain, calling once a year and checking in on somebody and saying, you know, you're, you're doing okay. Uh, you, you lost somebody. I know we're, this is a big day for you, you know, calling on the anniversary of that day. Um, the, the first guy I ever knew that was, was killed was also the guy I knew the best and has, was the closest to. And we trained together for seven years. And he actually put me through the, the recon indoctrination program and stood on my head on the bottom of swimming pools and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> You know, Foster Harrington, Sergeant Foster Harrington. And I still remember the day Foster got killed. Um, I was a captain. He was a sergeant. And he got shot through the head. And, and they got him on a helicopter. And I'll never, you know, I recount that in the in that piece. But I'll never forget them opening the, the helicopter door and and seeing that. And, and then knowing I needed to go tell my Marines, who were also his very good friends, what had happened. And then, oh, by the way, we got work to do tonight. Um, that's the hardest part, right? Yeah. And you got to ball all that up. Keeping guys focused, like when emotions are high and being like, well, you're not allowed to grieve in combat. No, no at all. I mean, when, when Ron Allen Sev got killed, it was like, I was going through a whole bunch of emotions in a vehicle QRFing them. And my company commander at the time, who's now, I guess about to be our, possibly going to be our group commander. Um, he looked at me and he's like, where's your head right now? Like I'm driving and he's in the TC spot, the you know, the vehicle commander spot. And he's like, where's your head? And I was like, I'm here. And he's like, you got a job to do. You can unfuck that other shit later. And yeah. I was like, 
Roger that. And then we got in a gunfight. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, and I, I, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday getting in, I, we all lived in one big room. My platoon lived in this Iraqi train station repair facility and I'm short and I had to stand up on a cooler so I could talk to them all. And I remember saying, Hey, you know, I need to tell you, you know, our brother Foster was killed today and here's what happened and blah, 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 blah. And now I need you to ball that up. And I need to put it way down deep inside because we got work to do and you cannot let that affect your judgment, you know, for good or for ill, because we still have, uh, you know, a code that we have to operate by and we still have standards of behavior that we have to operate by. And I can't have your anger, you know, or your sadness clouding that. And I also can't have it making you slower, you know, or what have you. So anyway, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a hard thing, but it's critical to remember those guys. And, and that's the obligation that we all carry for really the rest of our lives. Um, this is a, it's a, it's a weird condition. I, I study war a lot, right? We, um, we package that grief, right? I think that like one thing that we do well as, as war fighters is compartmentalize that grief that we have for the loss of like close, you know, associates. Um, and I think that we're lucky. I mean, I certainly am lucky to have lived this long because I was uh, up until like 2014, I was definitely on a trajectory to be dead, like for a variety of reasons. And, um, I mean, like, I didn't deal with what happened in 2009 until 2015. Sure. And, like, I don't know what a good way, like, I I think a lot of the time we think that compartmentalizing that grief in the moment is it. That's it. You know, like, I put it in a box and I bury it super deep and I just go on with my job. But I, I think that that grief and not dealing with it is going to come up later and for a lot of guys. Well, we, we talk so much on this podcast about veteran transition. And I think that's literally one of the linchpins that it makes transition so difficult for guys is they are taught to compartmentalize everything emotional to include grief. And it's so difficult for them to open up those floodgates once they get out and start having honest conversations about where they're at and, you know, in life and leaving the military and leaving the service and leaving all their uh, people behind. Um, and it's hard, man. And, and a lot of guys that all of a sudden something triggers it and all that stuff comes flooding out. And But writing um, has been a great way clearly for you huge. and for me to, to like get that out and get through a clear thought process. I'm like, Hey, how am I processing this? Why was I doing all these self-destructive things? Like, you know, for years, like I, in looking back, I realized I had a lot of things that I would, had not dealt with, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't, writing is certainly not the answer for everyone, but I certainly don't think institutionally we are equipped. Like, I don't think we're preparing a lot of our peers well for when that, when, when they have to process that, when compartmentalization is no longer a valid coping mechanism. There's a need for expression. Yeah. It I doesn't mean, even have to be artistic. So there's a guy that, that uh, is a friend, a real good friend of mine, retired Marine Master Gunnery Sergeant, EOD guy, uh, Chris Stowe. And Chris has been blown up any number of times. Chris is a talented writer. Chris is a talented painter. Now he's just glass blowing. And he lives down in Tampa. Um, and uh, he, does, he runs a glass blowing program for vets um, because that's what worked for him. He's also really tied into the whole Boulder Crest retreat, which was started by another, by I think a Navy EOD guy, but it's a place for guys to just go no cost and kind of get their head straight to me. Um, this is, I think kind of my next mission. I don't know. That's going to be like, you know, my everyday mission, but it's just something I'm talking to guys about because I, I got I think I got a pretty good ability to cross the lines, enlisted officer, whoever, and say to a guy, look, this is the reality. Like we, 
we believe a lot of us in stoicism, we're all pretty stoic in some regard. Uh, some of that's just being a man in America. You're supposed to be stoic, boys don't cry, whatever. Um, and I absolutely adhered to that for a long, long, long time and pushing publish on medium in 2013 or whatever year I wrote that was the first step towards saying, okay, um, world, here's a little crack into my head. Um, and then when I started writing for you guys, um, which again, I, I really cannot say thank you enough. I, I, I genuinely appreciate we, it. We feel exactly the same way. Um, I'm having a ball with it. I don't think you understand how hard it is to find like good content contributors that are like competent writers. And I'm deeply grateful for you coming out and bolstering like the random things that my thoughts that I've poorly expressed about, you know, self, a sense of self and like exploring your own identity. I, I fell in love with you <laughs> as a human when you, we had a conversation about identity and I had written a piece about it and then you wrote a piece about identity and then you, you and I talked about that you're like, Hey man, this has really gotten me thinking about it. And you started talking about like the person that we've tried to be for years may not be our best self. Yeah. And like getting off the hamster wheel and exploring what makes us happy really outside of a sense of identity in the thing that we thought as high schoolers would be the thing to be. So my, like my, my, uh, scout master, I was a boy scout for a lot of years. I was an Eagle scout the whole night. Me too. Uh, I would do the cigarette yeah. handshake. How? <laughs> um, but my scoutmaster was a, a then 11th and 12th group guy. Now it would be a 20th group guy. But he was a, a SF guy, Vietnam veteran. And he really took me around and introduced me to a lot of these soft guys. So my dad was a Marine. That got me started moving down the Marine Corps path. Then he took me down this soft path. And then again, I'm a voracious reader, so I'm reading about all these guys. And so, yeah, you build an idea of who you think you are and who you're supposed to be because you're reading a one-dimensional, maybe even two-dimensional uh, representation on a page about a guy that you don't really know. You know what you're reading about or you know what he's saying. And so uh, when I started writing and started thinking about this stuff, this is where David Joy really helped me out. Um, and I, I referenced this in that, that latest piece was he said, hey, you got to be fearless and vulnerable. Well, fearless is it's not easy, actually, to be fearless, as we all know, because if you've ever been shot at, you know, you want to hide behind a thing. I mean, it's not easy anywhere. Um, vulnerable is probably harder. And I started thinking about it with our population. I had a job a few years ago, and the position put me in a, a spot to help guys. Um, we had, because of the unit, the, the particular place I was working and the timeline in our organizational history, all of our E7, E6, E8 guys were mostly war babies. You know, very few of them were pre-9-11 service members. A good number of them were Silver Star recipients, Navy Cross recipients, Bronze Star with V recipients, et cetera, which, you know, I don't want to start a service fight here, but the Marine Corps is pretty reticent to give out significant valor awards. So these guys had seen a lot of stuff. Well, that comes with a cost. And I'm not at all a guy who's like, you know, oh my God, my, my, tra my trauma. Um, it's just that, you know, it, behind every silver star write-up is, you know, like a guy I know who, who made a decision to die. He fortunately didn't, but he was caught on the X in an ambush. He was bisected by a round that plunged, came in through the top, went out through his left side, came in through the right shoulder, went out through the left. Um, and he was a corpsman. And he was staring at his buddies who were all trying to get to him to get him out of this vehicle where he was caught. And he looked at him and he was like, no, you, you have to stay behind cover. If you come for me, you're going to die. 
So he made the decision to bleed out. Um, and and the, the upside was he survived, thankfully. But that's not something where you just, oh, yeah, I almost bled out and now I'm good. And, oh, well, I, I sat there and I was eyeball, eyeball with a guy that I love. And, like, I'm comfortable saying a guy that I love. Um, I love you, Jake Dem, man. Um, he's, he's beautiful, man. <laughs> but uh, watching that happen and make those decisions under pressure, under fire, nothing you can do about it, that leaves you with something. And it doesn't mean that you have to wake up in the middle of the night screaming, you know, like somebody in a movie or sweating or whatever. It just means you have had a significant experience and you probably should work it out like Doug's talking about. Dude, I mean, when, when my wife and I were like on the cusp of getting a divorce and were separated for a good year, um, my nightmares that came, like I had not had nightmares. I, I think when I got back from Afghanistan in 09, I had nightmares that I dismissed and didn't really talk about it because like whatever like I, I woke up and I went about work and um, certainly didn't talk about it with my wife or anybody else and when we were separated I started to have like really consistent nightmares that Freud would have had a heyday with they were always about a lack of control that that sense of like I know better I've been in this experience and like I don't have a voice like I would be in like on a repeat reel like I'm in a truck. I'm getting ready. Like here I am going through my like my whole battle prep sequence and getting in a in a truck and getting in a convoy and going on a mission and like seeing an ambush unfolding and not able to tell anybody what's happening and then just like watching everybody die, you know, and like waking up and the fact that I was in counseling at the time and I was keeping a journal and I was like paying attention to what was going on in my life helped me articulate that I had major control issues that like I didn't have control over my wife. I didn't have control over like how she received what I did that I was doing things, uh, you know, like as kind of like self-medicating that were affecting her and I could stop doing those things, but I couldn't change the way she processed things like that lack of control, not knowing if we were going to work things out, um, that brought back a lot of like control issues that came from not being able to stop my friends from getting killed. And, um, I think that, all of us, I mean, I don't want to project on you guys, but if there is one issue that soft guys have in general or, or military people is feeling like they don't have control over something. Well, you mentioned stoicism before, and I think stoicism is a critical component to mental health for a lot of military people. But in the same token, stoicism is grossly misunderstood by most people. Stoicism to most people means a person that never shows any emotion, that never lets anything get to them. And what that ends up becoming is compartmentalization of emotions, mm -hmm. which allows these traumas to build over time and become a tipping point. But stoicism is really about recognizing your emotions, understanding the root of those emotions and coming up with tools, internal and external tools to deal with those emotions in a healthy way. Yes. And that is cathartic for a lot of people and people that are very good at that externally can look very put together and calm and collected in all weathers. But the reality is, is they've spent an enormous amount of emotional, spiritual and mental effort to try to figure out how they can recognize and deal with it as opposed to compartmentalize. And I think a lot of what you described, Doug, and a lot of what you described is kind of a transition between those two 
points, you know, is like putting everything in a way in a box and putting on a steely ad killer face uh, to let's talk, let's deal, let's become vulnerable but yet remain fearless, you know? Yeah, that That's a great way to sum it up. And I, I, Recognizing our fear. It's not about being fearless, right? Because yeah. everyone has fears. Well, yeah, it's fear. Fear. If you don't have fear, that's because you're too stupid to realize there's danger present. I'm raising you my know? hand right now. <laughs> right? There's a, and, there's a, and that's the <laughs> thing. Bravery, the, you know, people talk about there's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. And I don't agree with that. I think stupidity is not recognizing the danger and moving forth through lack of recognizing. And bravery is recognizing, coming coming to grips with the reality of the situation and making a hard decision uh, to, in order to proceed forward, like bleeding out in a truck so your buddies die, yeah. don't, well, you know, and, won't die. You know, when you were talking about, uh, you know, that dichotomy, it was making me think of one of the other guys we work with who told me a story in the past uh, about something that happened when he was deployed that he would later look back at and really just kind of continue to think about um, in support of like a, you know, like a, a higher tier organization doing a hit on a house, those guys coming in afterwards and they had gone in to like, you know, take out this individual and there was like a three or four year old kid that was like in the room on the, you know, at the same time and how basically, you know, one of the operators from, you know, this like higher tier organization come in, had gone immediately from like sh shooting this guy in the face to picking up this like screaming three-year-old kid and like, you know, like holding him and like patting him on the back and like trying to calm this kid down. And how at the time, you know, he was like, man, that's like, fuck, like, why do you give a fuck about this kid? Like, you know, we did it. Like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like we're, you know, we're badasses, right? Um, and that it taking some time for that to sink in and be like, wow, man, like that was amazing. This guy just was able to like execute his mission, be super calm and then immediately turn and have the empathy for this child that went through this like traumatic experience to kind of like come in obviously not going to be the person that's there for the long run. Um, but it, it, you know, not just like be like, well, like, fuck it, we're out of here. Like, you know, kick some dust on this kid and like walk out. Um, and just the amount of like emotional maturity that it would take to be able to do those two same things within the span of five minutes, you know, or whatnot. Well, so much of what <clears throat> I hear the term toxic going, kind of like not going back to the social political thing we we're talking about, but I hear the term toxic masculinity used a lot these days. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that that is due to a lot of the misunderstanding of what we're talking about. You know, people, people see the veneer of what they see these ultra, like the, the dude in the unit that like shoots the dude in the face and gets the mission done and then like moves over and can comfort the child. Like they see that and they're like, Oh yeah. You know what that is? Is that's just like the ability to just like, turn it on and turn it off and, you know, do this thing. And they don't understand the, the, the mechanism behind that, that allows somebody to do that. So instead of working on the mechanism, they work on the exterior expression of that, which is like being an asshole and like talking hardcore and like, you know, just, just all this bullshit that has nothing to do with being yeah. a man in the United States. I, I would say what that guy's done is mastered his emotions. Exactly. In, in a very positive way. Um, you know, a similar situation. I can remember a hit that we did and uh, one of my Marines who's now a SWAT guy down in Texas. Um, I remember seeing him come out of the back of a house and he had like three toddlers under both arms and he just wanted to get them out of the way of things. 
Mm-hmm. And I can you know, I couldn't tell you how many times I have sat in a room with a bunch of women and kids while my Marines were still clearing the rest of the house. So there's flashbangs going off. You know, there's people yelling and screaming and I'm handing out candy and just, hey, let's let's try. This is a traumatic thing. You don't want to lose your humanity, right? I yeah, never. Those, those kids can never eat candy again. Well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, think, you know, you think about that and uh, and those kids you know, who, who knows where they are today, they're obviously. All, they're all satirists now. Probably. <laughs> um, and maybe because I was, you know, in there at 2 o'clock in the morning handing them candy while the rest of their house was blowing up. But <laughs> nonetheless, I, I think trying to retain some level of, of humanity is absolute and maintaining the emotional or intelligence, I think was what you used, um, to retain that humanity and understand the difference is key. And that's kind of what I, I want to say to guys now when we talk about, you know, human performance, Softleet is a human performance company. Uh, when I started seeing the Softleet spade pop up was down in the gym at, at Camp Lejeune. Um, and I was like, hey, what's that all about? Well, I then kind of springboard off of that when I'm talking to guys, especially guys who have like extensive tough guy resumes, you know, with significant valor awards and five, six, eight combat deployments. And I don't mean, com- I got three combat deployments one of which was a combat deployment, two of which were deployments to combat zones. And there's a real difference there. Oh, yeah. These are guys who, if you were squatting in the dirt in Farah Province for, you know, four deployments on a VSO site or with a commando Kandak or in Iraq, you know, doing hits in 2004, um, that's a combat deployment. And I say to them, hey, you know, you're all about lifting and you're all about getting stronger and faster and better and you're, you're pumping these coaches that we have for as much information as humanly possible. Why are you not leveraging the ability to be mentally faster, stronger, and healthier? Why are you, you know, and, and look, I'm, this is the classic, you know, pointing one finger and, and three or four, if you count thumbs, point back at you. Um, I, I suppress tons of stuff and I refuse to talk about tons of stuff. And I said tons of stuff didn't matter. And, and if you catch me on the right day, I'll still say it. But I have always believed, right, and I'll, I'll sound, uh, I've been accused of being romantic by a couple of my more senior mentors. I firmly believe an officer has an obligation to lead in whatever capacity that officer can. And if that's me saying, hey, guys, you know, there were times I was scared. There's times I have been super sad. There's times when I didn't know exactly how to deal with my emotions that were presented to me, but I had to ball them up. And then I didn't get around to looking at them later. Um, That stuff's going to come out on everybody in some fashion. I'm blessed. I don't drink, so I don't have that problem. Uh, I have never fooled around with, you know, any kind of substances. I'm not, I don't have that problem. Um, but other than barbecue, other than extensive consumption of (laughs) Southern cuisine. Um, but you know, people don't take the time to do that, that self work. Right. I think a lot of the time, like you're lucky because you're not, you're not putting yourself in a depressive state. Like someone who drinks is where those things come up more, more poignantly and you don't know how to deal with them. Um, I told a guy, I, I'm a big advocate of like meditation. Um, I know that like when I was doing journaling and stuff, like the meditation before the journaling really brought up a lot of things for me to write about and talk about. They would just come into my mind and I'm like, well, if it popped up, then I guess I should write about it. You know what I mean? And, um, I, I have advocated that in the softly team room for a while. George does too. Um, I think we're all kind of like pro meditation for a variety of performance reasons as well as, you know, psychological help. And I've had a lot of younger guys that have reacted very negatively to that, that are like, well, you guys are, you guys are old and out of the game. You've got time. 
to sit down and thinking like, hey, man, I mean, like we're still on teams. Like Brian and I are still on SF teams and we have found things like we take the time to do the self-work, like, you know, going to therapy or woodworking or like, you know, pursuing a passion that that involves some self-awareness, um, taking that time, taking 10 minutes out of your day to meditate. Oh, I can't do that when I'm downrange. That's weird. Well, I did it. People, you know? people do what either comes easy to them or is the most culturally well-regarded thing, you know, and in the military, a good commander, as you talk about, can make or break the morale of a unit by making positive things culturally accepted or negative things culturally accepted. You know, those commanders is like, Hey man, we're going to get off work. We're going to go drink until we fall over. Then we're going to go freaking chase pussy, you know, all this sort of stuff. And like, we're going to put all of our efforts into that. And then you have commanders that are, that are like, Hey man, let's like talk, you know, let's like talk through some of this stuff. Let's try to make those like positive decisions. Like we could still go get drunk and we could still freaking go chase pussy, but let's like, let's, fit, let's also put some work and effort into the, the mental side of the house rather than the physical. And for many guys in the military, working out's freaking easy, man. Everybody likes to go freaking jack steel and deadlift and, you know, put heavy things over their head. So they put a lot of effort into that and they consider themselves, they're not lazy. You know, I know like I'm virtually, I know very few people in the soft world, for example, that are lazy people, it's very <laughs> self-starting, but it's just not, <laughs> it's just not culturally acceptable to, do things like meditation and the younger people see that and they, they have this idea of what it, it is to be a green beret or a Navy seal or a Marine Raider and meditating. Yeah. And their mind is it not, it does not a part of that. sitting somewhere for 15 minutes and just reflecting like or being, clearing your head. Or being honest. When just, I was young, I thought it was going to mean that I was like the suit, the suit one. I thought I'd be about six inches taller than I am and better looking. And I wouldn't have to fight this gut. Uh, number one, Number two, I just thought I was going to be like just hard, just insanely hard suddenly because I was. That I would like to also point out that the gut is nowhere near as prominent as you pretend I'm sucking it, is. it in. <laughs> yeah. um, but so I, I think that... Um, well, because you have, you have the wrong impression of what those things mean, right? When you're right. young. The hardest motherfucker I ever met in the army, this guy named Chuck, I won't use his last name, I think I saw him four times in the time I knew him without the biggest shit-eating grin on his face all the time. And that guy was harder than fucking shit, man. Anything you threw at him in any combat situation, training situation, it did not matter. It was like a game and he was having fun, right? And it totally changed my image because the dudes that, that looked hard going into those events fucking crumbled, right? Like when the rubber met the road, the fucking veneer that they had put on to impress everybody else about how hard they were fell back. It's like you wrote the, the, Oh no, that was uh, purpose wrote the, uh, like if you talk about being, a, if you talk about quitting, you're probably a quitter. And it's like guys that talk about being a badass or a hard ass are probably not those things. And well, that's um, the problem with everyone who, well, I don't want to say everyone, but the majority of dudes who failed, and a selection program and they go back to their units and you talk to younger soldiers that are like, well, my platoon sergeant went to SFAS and he told me that it was like, you know, everybody there was seven feet tall and was running sub six minute miles. And I'm like, that's weird. 
that wasn't me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I made it. What's wrong with your platoon sergeant? You know, like you owe it to yourself to try this thing on your own yeah. and understand that it's not like we're not superhuman people. We're just people that make up our mind that we're going to do something and then we do it. Yeah. Well, I think that like the toughest guy I know in the Marine Corps, like the most genuinely tough dude, Cody Alford. <laughs> I, I don't want to get in a scrap with him. That is for certain. It wouldn't work out well for me. Um, but no, th this guy was one of my sergeants in, in my platoon in Iraq, and he's now a major. He's an active duty major. Um, and he is an incredible student of warfare. I mean, he is a professional Marine officer. Like, he takes his profession very seriously. Um, he is also the single most combat experienced guy I know. And you want to go toe to toe with a guy, it's, you know, it's not him. Like, he is a switch. He's also one of the most in touch, you know, with himself, human beings. Um, we have hours upon hours upon hours of conversation because I, and I'll tell him sometimes when he calls, I'm like, I don't have time to talk to you right now. I, I can't get into this because we're going to section off four hours yeah, of my day. I, I can't <laughs> stare at my navel for the next three hours as much as it would be. But at the same time, uh, you know, I, this was a, a night I remember um, kind of my, my cauldron moment. We were, we were doing a hit and uh, we ended up in a really, really close gunfight or, I mean, three of us did. There were two Marines and a uh, quick story. I'm, I'm holding on this door and the Marines are clearing through the rest of the house. Cause I'm the platoon commander. I always made entry, but I, I usually held it kind of, a, we just called a marshaling area where you bring all the stuff back to stuff and people. So I'm holding there and I'm looking at this one doorway and the doorway's closed and I'm, you know, gun up holding on it. And I look down and I see two flip-flops outside the door, you know, just positioned like somebody dropped them there before they headed in. And I'm thinking, I'm going to just pop this door, clear this room so the boys don't have to. And I'm, we're already here, whatever. And then I heard a voice. I'm not overly religious, but I heard a voice and I felt a hand on my shoulder like, hey, stupid, don't do that. And step to your left. Don't stand in front of the door. You've been trained better than that. So I step out of the door. And two guys come back, uh, one of whom had been engaged in a really close shootout before. Um, and we stack up on the door and pop that door, bang the room. And the first guy through the door is like muzzle to muzzle with a guy with an AK. And uh, they're shooting at each other and it's incredibly confusing. And the, the number one guy going through the door is back and back out of the door as he's firing. Then he goes down like right at my feet. And the second guy, who's a SF guy now, um, you know, steps over him and, and continues on into the room and does what he needs to do. Um, and my response was to drag that guy who was down. I grabbed him and I dragged him out of the doorway. Uh, I probably should have stepped over him and followed that other guy into the room, you know, doctrinally, training-wise, back him up. Um, but my reaction was to go for this sergeant on the ground and see that he was alive and get him handed off. And so my point in that is, A, I learned a lot about myself. I learned, like, I would rather save a friend than kill an enemy. Um, I'm not sure that speaks well to me in that role, but that's, that's how I felt. Um, and, but the next morning I was really having a lot of trouble with that and I'm the boss. I can't tell anybody I'm having a lot of trouble with that. Yeah. And I really, I'm, I'm just kicking my own ass over my instinctive, instinctive decision-making there. And I barely slept the seven months we were there because I was either executing a mission or planning the mission. I made sure the boys got their six to eight cause they're all laid out. All they got to do is kick down doors and, and, you know, get bad guys. Um, but I go and I wake up this guy who's, who's now a major and I was like, Hey, I got to talk to you outside. And we go out and I'm like, Hey man, you know, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. 
And he was my therapist on the spot, you know, we kind of talked through it. And he was with a lot of training in the area, you know, a lot of CQB training, a lot of shooting training, a lot of background, more, way more than the average bear. Um, and, and he kind of was like, look, man, you know, you still do what you need to do. You still went for a, you know, you went for a wounded Marine in a gunfight. That's pretty good. Um, but uh, I guess my point being, I learned then, I, I got to talk to somebody. You know, I can't do this for seven months and just take it all in. And I'm the guy who I got to talk to. You know, I spent a long time talking to the number two guy that night because he had he got target fixated on this guy. And when the guy went down, he was still holding on to an AK and the, the Marine just kept shooting. And he's like, sir, I, I feel like I goofed up. I, you know, I, I couldn't let loose. I couldn't stop shooting him. I said, well, of course you couldn't stop shooting him because he held on to the gun. You did exactly what you needed to do. But he felt like he had failed in his his mission. Um, and I, funny, oddly enough, you know who Paul Howe is. Yeah. Um, I reached out to Paul Howe when I got back from that deployment and I described that and he was like, no, you, you know, you service the target. You did what you needed to do. You got it done. Service the target. Um, and, and I, I really appreciated him saying that. I had a lot of admiration for him and I was coming from a very CQB world and, as, uh, as someone on the outside, like, cause I'm not an officer, I feel like it's a problem that's, that's probably harder to deal with as an officer, just because officers are so like, I don't, <clears throat> I know that you're not supposed to speak ill of the core. So in general, an officer core, I feel like the way that the, um, the ladder of progression goes, it's very difficult to take something that you view as a failure to like your superior. Like, I feel like in my experience, like lieutenants and sometimes captains are still pretty tight as far as being able to share things and talk amongst each other about failures or like improvements, but that by the time you reach major and lieutenant colonel, like career progression is such that like there's a very um, critical and and in my mind uh, predatorial uh, dynamic between senior officers and their subordinates, and that like senior officers are are very overly critical of their subordinates and subordinate officers are mindful of that criticism and therefore compartmentalize a lot of those potential failures. Is this, am I, am I too hard on the officer core? Yeah, bluntly, I think, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I, I say this, you know, I'm pretty genuine when I talk about this stuff, but uh, my CO there, um, he took like our casualties very hard, harder than I did. I mean, I can remember a time standing, you know, we had this great spot where you could look out and watch the sunset over the desert. And I remember standing there with him and he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm so blessed to be surrounded by so many amazing guys. It just hurts so damn bad when we lose one. And it, that was kind of a, a, a real epiphany for me. And this guy been a lot of places and done a lot of things, um, you know, even in the pre 9-11 days. And that meant a lot to me, like uh, that he could be that open. I also learned you can't necessarily show that to the boys. And this was why it was so important to have this guy who was a sergeant then and a major now that I could go off to the side and we could just talk like two grown, grown ass men, as I like to say. And, and, and he'd say, look, man, no, the, the guys can't see you having a whole lot of drama. So the day Foster got killed, I couldn't have a lot of drama. The yeah. day I eulogized him at his funeral, I'm standing up there doing the eulogy and I'm trying not to try not to cry um, because it's important for the guys to see you be strong. And it was important for them to see my boss be strong. As far as, you know, predatory 
or whatever. I mean, honestly, I, I can't say anything bad about the core because I don't really have anything bad to say. I mean, we could talk about I wish the institution were different this way. Yeah, I mean, I see it as a, <clears throat> a product of a zero defect mindset. Yeah, oh. that, that happens, but I think that's individualized. I have been really blessed the last few years to have some pretty amazing leaders, both uh, Army and Marine. Um, I worked for a Siege of commander, uh, seventh group guy, seventh group commander, third group guy, uh, Chris Riga. Um, oh, yeah. I absolutely adore Chris Riga. I was texting with him the other day when, uh, what's his face, uh, Hakani croaked. Yep. Um, Did he die, though? We think he's dead, right? And so, I, and you know, the command, oh, segue. The, se- the seven deaths of Hakani. The, the, the quick tangent <laughs> of Riga's commander's guidance at Siege of Sodaf was one, kill Hakani, two, shape to kill Hakani. And I texted him the other day. I was like, done. Uh, you know, it took a while, but we got it done. But he was amazing. I worked for a, another guy um, who retired a, a while back who was incredibly introspective and incredibly thoughtful mm-hmm. um, about his leadership and incredibly, and I would say the vast majority of my leadership, uh, the, the three-star that I work for now, is amazing how much time he spends and wants to spend saying, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Here's how you get there. Yeah. You know, really care. Now, I will say, conversely, I didn't have that till I was a major. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that was because of my segue into the reserves and back into the active forces. Sure. Um, you got to well, have a mentor, whatever you do. Yeah, so I want to hear more about what you're doing to give back to the community because I know that you're involved in some charitable efforts specifically for for the Raider community. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm the vice president of the Marine Raider Association. Our president's a retired colonel named Craig Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. We are paired up with the Marine Raider Foundation. Um, we kinda, you know, we're working through the, uh, the various 501 aspects of all of those organizations. But um, the foundation, formerly the Marsoc Foundation, handles a lot of the funding issues. Our job is preserve, mobilize, and connect. Mm-hmm. Um, so our goal is to preserve Raider history, right. um, to mobilize active, retired um, just EAS, whatever, to find all of the guys who left the regiment and the unit. If, and our take is if you were assigned to MARSOC and you want to be a Raider, you're, I mean, you're a Raider, right? If you're at MARSOC, you're a Raider. Um, and if you want to be in the Raider Association, we want you in the Raider Association. If you're a family member or a friend, we want you in the Raider Association. You just, um, just uh, you can just post an inner office circular at the agency, right? Right. It's where, it's where everybody disappears to. I don't know anything about that. Um, so... We uh, we're preserve the memory, mobilize those guys, and then connect. Mm-hmm. And the idea being, hey, let's. We've talked a lot about guys who need help. The problem isn't when you're on active duty, and you guys, I hope, can can back me up on this. You know, the problem comes when you're out. I can walk down the hall and talk to a guy and say, look, man, you know, let me tell you about this thing I saw. That's kind of in my head. Gets it totally. We may even laugh about it. Well, fast forward 10 years, I'm working at, you know, Kaopectate Industries, and I say that to my production manager, let me tell you about this night. This is crazy. There I was, you know, and you describe some insane scenario that you can only find there. Those guys don't have that anymore. And my prediction is that's when the problems come. Mm-hmm. That's when you start really bottling everything up, or that's when everything explodes out. And so we really want to connect guys with both each other, guys and gals, uh, and with the resources to support them. So, hey, if you're out there, if you're a Raider or you're a friend of a Raider, we got members of the Green Beret Foundation. Um, we got all kind of guys who are linked to us. Um, please be a part of the Where association. Where can people find out more about the association? MarineRaiders.org. Right. Uh, or excuse me, MarineRaiderAssociation.org. 
uh, is our website. It's got the full membership information there. It's got our history. It's got our purpose, the whole nine. We just did a massive revamp of it. Um, and we're in the process of, of taking an organization that's been in existence for 70 years mm-hmm. that was built by World War II Raiders. Yeah, I think the, one of the former presidents actually lives here in Chapel Hill. A guy named Greg something. Uh, well, um, Tyson Stahl's in, here in Raleigh. He, uh, his, his father was, uh, was a World War II Raider. Oh, okay. Yeah, the family's um, kept this thing alive Yeah, uh, in the interim. There were no active duty Raiders involved in this thing until probably six or eight years ago. So God bless the, the kids, the you know, cousins, sisters, wives, whatever of the World War II Raiders, because as those guys aged out of kind of being able to keep it moving forward, mm-hmm. their families have kept it alive. It's a legit family reunion. And some of these people who were never in the military have grown up attending these Raider reunions every year. And so it's a huge event for them. We just had it in D.C., um, it was a three-day event up there. We had a great night at, at uh, 8th and I, the headquarters. Um, the commandant had all the Raiders as, as his guest. And uh, we watched the evening parade, which was really cool. And then uh, just a lot, we had festivities. And then we had a Marine Raider ball. So we had active duty and World War II. I think we had 13 World War II Raiders, basically a squad of these old badasses. Awesome. Uh, it was awesome. There's not many of them left. No, no. We had less than 100 of them living. Uh, were those underneath Carlson or? Uh, well, you know, we had four battalions. And so there were about, if you look at the roles, almost 4,000 Raiders uh, over the course of World War II. Um, of that, 100 of them are still alive. And so some of them were Carlson Raiders. Uh, some of them were Edson Raiders. Some of them were 3rd and 4th Battalion Raiders uh, under you know President Roosevelt's kid, Jimmy Roosevelt. Yep. Um, and, uh, and so there's a lot of fascinating history there. I was talking to one guy who ended up, he was an orthodontist for, the, for most of his life. Um, I actually posted about him in the team room. I mean, the guy yeah, was amazing. He, uh, he was a Raider, and then he flew fighters and you know, was, was getting it on in Korea, came home from that. He'd done 11 years. He's like, you know what? Enough. I yeah. want to straighten teeth now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and he became. Talk about a flim flam operation. <laughs> what a transition, though, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, so where can people find out more, follow you and your writing and do they can friend me. I love you know. I'll I'll take a friend request on Facebook from just about anybody. The, which, op, the yeah. opposite of Brian Heskey. Are, are you on yeah. Instagram? No, nah, I'm I'm completely not on anything of any. I, I'm on Twitter, but I don't ever look at it. Right. Um, Facebook's pretty much it. The, the downside is I uh, I'll accept any friend request. So now my Facebook feed is like pictures of kids of people I don't know. Right. Um, but that's cool because but all the hot Russian models. Right. Yeah. <laughs> those I, those I say no to if they have one friend. And I can't figure out why they would want to talk to a 45-year-old guy. I, I'd say no thanks to that one. Right. All right. Well, I think we got to wrap it up here today, but I have a feeling that this will not be the only time. I hope not. I've had a blast. This conversation. So thank you very much, Worth. It's awesome having you as a guest. We appreciate it. And until next time, we'll catch you at Softly HQ.